right, well, we are going to jump into uh, the book of Romans today. So uh, if you picked up a paper, uh, you can follow along on the paper. If you have your book, we're going to start on page 54. And our goal for this morning is to talk about the who, the what, the why, when of the book of Romans, uh, give an introduction to it, and then look at an overview of the first four chapters. Um, there's probably no more of an important book as far as in history than the book of Romans. Uh, 500 years ago, uh, with uh, Martin Luther and his great Reformation, that took place because of the reading of the book of Romans and the subject of the righteousness of God. You see, as Martin Luther had previously saw the righteousness of God as something that only belonged to God. God was righteous. God was holy. Man was not righteous and not holy. Therefore, uh, the only way that man could get to God is to try to do righteous and holy things. And that was the means of attaining righteousness. Well, that was what he was taught all of his life. That, that was the mentality of the, the global church at the time. And then he began to read the book of Romans and something happened. It sparked in him this idea of righteousness, yes, was something God possessed, but also, righteousness was something that God would give to those who came to him by faith. And he that knew no sin became sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. And he began to read Romans about the gospel, the good news of Jesus, that by our faith in him, we can receive. And that righteousness of God is, is imputed and imparted to us that thereby, by faith and faith alone, we can become righteous. So there was a great reformation in the church, and what we would know as the, the Protestant or the protested church by protesting the, uh, you know, the, the global religion of, of Martin Luther's day, the Protestant church was birthed, and we today are products of believing in Jesus by our very faith. And that was primarily sparked by the book, of Romans. So the book of Romans has, is so fascinating. It's Paul's masterpiece, as it has been called in the past. So we're going to kind of give an, an introduction of, of Romans today and look at the first uh, few chapters of the book of Romans. And probably for most of us, if you're like me, um, my first introduction to the book of Romans was the Romans Road. Uh, is that kind of your first memories of of the book of Romans, the Romans Road. For anybody remember the scriptures for the Romans Road? Romans 3, 3 something. For all have sinned, come short of the glory of God. For the wages of sin is death. Uh, if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart, you shall be saved. And so there are these scriptures in Romans that as a child, we were taught in church to, if you want to lead somebody to Christ, lead them down the Romans Road. For Romans is a book that tells people how to be saved. It's a book that tells them how to be made righteous. When we look at the book of Romans as a whole, yes, the book of Romans does teach us how we as individuals can become righteous before God. But that wasn't the only thing that Paul was concerned about when writing the book of Romans. There was a larger scope. So when we look at the two approaches to Romans, and I want us to pay attention as you're going back and you're reading through Romans I want you to see these little things because we can 
oftentimes read the book of Romans as, you know, it was, it's for us as an individual to lead us to salvation, which is true. And that's one part of the coin, but there's another part of the coin. So what we see here is two approaches that we can consider to the book of Romans. And that is the individual approach. And then it's the corporate approach, which talks about groups of people, not just individuals of people. And in this, we find two of our major topical scripture verses that we want to look at. First of all, with the individual approach, and the individual approach is how an individual is declared and made right with God. And that is by our faith in what Jesus has done for us. And our scripture verse for how individuals become right with God is in the first chapter of the book of Romans. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, because it is the power of God to salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Gentiles. So to everyone that believes, the gospel is revealed. But we said last week that every text, every writing has a context. And the context is the book of Romans was written to the saints who are in Rome. So it was written to a variety of a group of people. Therefore, we see the corporate approach. And the corporate approach to the book of Romans is that the Jews are God's chosen people. We see that through the Old Testament. So to the Jew first was the gospel preached on the day of Pentecost. So God chose uh, the Jews to be his chosen people. And in Acts chapter 2, on the day of Pentecost, the gospel was preached to the Jews that they could respond to the gospel. But however, God also chose the Gentiles, that the gospel wasn't just for the Jews alone, it was also for the Gentiles, all of those outside of the Jewish ethnicity. Therefore, by the believing Jews and by the believing Gentiles, both by faith in Jesus, both Jew and Gentile come to faith in Jesus by the same way. The church is the corporate body of Christ, made up of both Jews and Gentiles, as he gives his righteousness to both groups in the same way. So one of the contexts of the book of Romans is that if you're a Jew, you have some history, you know, there are advantages, you have a rich history with God, but yet you have no advantage over the Gentiles. And the Gentiles have no advantage over the Jews. Whether you're Jew or Gentile, if you're going to come to Christ, we all must come the same way. And that is through Jesus Christ and through our faith in Jesus Christ. And there are some to Maybe to our surprise, there are some today, even in the Christian world, that believes that the Jews have a separate special covenant with God and can come by some other way, uh, or by keeping the Torah, or by being faithful to the old covenant. But that is absolutely not the case, and that's one of the major messages of the book of Romans, that God chose the Jews, and He chose the Gentiles both in Christ. And Romans 15 is kind of the theme verse for this. I used to only have the theme verses Romans chapter 1. But however, to read Romans chapter 15, it, to miss that is to miss a large portion of Paul's message in the book of Romans. Look at what Paul says in Romans chapter 15. He says, May the God who gives endurance and encouragement give you the same attitude of mind toward each other. That Christ Jesus, or that Christ Jesus had, so that with one mind and one voice. 
you may glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Accept one another, then just as Christ accepted you, in order to bring praise to God. There's, there's a book that I've been reading called Reading Romans Backwards. And a lot of times if we start at the beginning and read Romans, we kind of get into this individual approach that, you know, Romans is all about me and it's all about the individual, which it does speak to the individual. But reading Romans backwards, starting with Romans 15 and 14, you get a different picture of the book of Romans. For it, Romans chapter you know, 13, 12, 13, 14, and 15 talks about the body of Christ made up of Jews and Gentiles and how the Jews are accepted into covenant and how they now, as two different cultures and two different peoples, are now supposed to live together and not just live together and tolerate one another, but be one people in God. So that's why Paul encourages them here to have the same mind toward one another that Christ Jesus had. Whether you're a Jew or Gentile, you have the same mind, the same attitude, the same outlook toward one another as Christ does. That, would, that together with one voice in mind, they would glorify God and he tells them to accept one another just as God through Christ has accepted them. So the theme is the righteousness of God. It's the righteousness of God for individuals and it's also the righteousness of God for the Jews and the Gentiles and how God's righteousness is given to both so that both can become one. So that's our major theme in the book of Romans. And we're going to see that eight to ten times in major passages in the book of Romans. And that's the theme of the righteousness of God. And again, in this, this graphic here, the inclusion of the Gentiles and justification by faith. How the righteousness of God includes the Gentiles into the people of God along with the believing Jews. And also how one is justified in the sight of God by faith. Uh, some facts about the righteousness of God. God's righteousness is God's gracious gift to all. And I'm so thankful that God's righteousness is a gift to each and every one of us. Nothing we can earn, nothing we can deserve, nothing we can work toward, something that we are. You cannot become in your spirit any more righteous than you are today. You are the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. And it's only when we try to achieve a form of righteousness through our self-righteousness is when we fall short of the righteousness of God. And the righteousness of God is available through Christ, not through keeping the law, not through Torah, not through any observances, not within ourselves, but available through Christ, and it's appropriated through the Spirit. Again, not the letter of the law, not through keeping the Old Testament commands, but through the Holy Spirit who works in our lives. So that's a few brief introductions. So when you read Romans, read it in an individual sense. What does Romans speak to me? How can I obtain righteousness? But also look at how Paul deals with the different groups of people that he is trying to speak with. One more, and I didn't put it on the slideshow, but another interesting fact about the book of Romans is who it was written to. And that is the saints who are in Rome. Now, Rome was the ruling empire at the time. And it's very interesting that a lot of the language that we use in church today, which comes from the book of Romans, was not unique to Christianity. They, they weren't set out to be religious words. They were set out to be 
political words. The word that we use as the gospel, which means the good news, it comes from the Greek word which we get the word evangelism from. That was a word that was in circulation as a political word in the Roman Empire. The, the title, the Son of God. Yes, Jesus is the Son of God, but Paul uses that because the Caesar was called the Son of God. Lord and Savior. Another title for Caesar. Can you guess what that was? Lord and Savior. It was a political term that was used. Even the word that we get church from, which is the, the Greek word ekklesia, that was also used in the Roman Empire as those communities who had allegiance to Caesar and to the Roman gods. They, they were the ecclesia. So another interesting fact is how Paul wrote this letter to those who were in Rome that, that they had Caesar worship and he was seen as a god, that you had to pledge allegiance to him as Lord and Savior, that he was seen as some type of divinity or the Son of God that the good news was the good news of Caesar's rule as they would go forth ruling and conquering surrounding nations. That was the good news and the building up of the Roman Empire, the Roman kingdom. And now Paul comes in and he writes this letter and he talks about how there is a true Lord and Savior named Jesus. And he's the true Son of God. And we must pledge allegiance to him and to his kingdom. And that the good news is the good news that of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. That now he sits at the right hand of God and is Lord and Savior. And coming together as his body is the calling out of the true ecclesia, the true church. So the backdrop of the message of the book of Romans comes from the empire. and comes from the political world of that day, which is something we don't often see just by reading it because we've taken these words and just Christianized them, which that's what Paul did, so that's a good thing, but it spoke something so deep to those who were in Rome as well. So keep that in mind as well when you see some of these words like good news and son of God, and when it talks about Jesus, in fact, we'll look at it in just a few moments uh, at the beginning of the chapter of Romans chapter 1. But anyway, let's, um, that's just some extra stuff I wanted to throw in there at the beginning um, because I just have to do that for some reason. I don't know why. Um, but on page 54 of, of our book, let me just run through some of these, the who wants and the when wears and the whys of the book of Romans because I do want to be able to get to where we can spend some time in the text. Normally what we would do, we would take one whole session to do the introductory and then get into, but because we did introduction last week, um, I'm trying to put these together because I've actually put out a whole schedule, what we're going to do every week, uh, and timed it out with holidays and when we need to end by the summer, and so it's going to throw me off real bad. If, uh... <laughs> But I love to teach so much, and I can't leave anything out, so I, I don't know what I... Just, just pray for me. Just, just pray for me. <laughs> That's all I can tell you. Um, on page 54 of our book, the orienting data, the content of the letter, what's an overall... Well, it's a letter of instruction and exhortation, um, setting forth Paul's understanding of the gospel. And the core of his understanding of the gospel is that Jew and Gentile together form one people of God. And they do this based on God's righteousness, and that it's received through faith in Jesus Christ and on the gift of the Holy Spirit. 
So yes, the righteousness of God is a big theme. Yes, how to obtain righteousness is a big theme. But the reason he talks about that is because he's dealing with this issue of Jews and Gentiles and how they get along. And the Jews think that they were, I mean, just to be honest, the Jews thought they were better than the Gentiles because they didn't have Abraham as, as their father. They didn't have the commandments and the law and, and the temple and the presence of God dwelling among them for their history. They didn't have, the Gentiles didn't have David as their king. So the Jews thought they were better and looked down upon the Gentiles. Well, then the Gentiles, well, they didn't keep the law of Moses, so, so they ate pork and they could, had freedom in wearing whatever they wanted to wear and they didn't celebrate these certain days and they thought they were more free than the Jewish people. You know, and they looked down upon them because they couldn't eat the same things and the Gentiles had more freedom that they saw. So Paul saw that there was this contention between Jews and Gentile believers and he's setting them together in one body based on this issue of righteousness. So the heart of the gospel is bringing Jew and Gentiles together in one body, but has done that based on righteousness through faith in Jesus and faith in Jesus alone. Um, it was written in 57, around 55 to 57 AD. Paul was in Corinth when he wrote the letter. And there's several uh, internal evidences uh, for that uh, as well that he wrote it from Corinth. The recipients was the church uh, in Rome. Paul did not, he was not the founder of the Roman body of believers. Um, we really don't know where the church in Rome started. We don't know how it started. Um, it could have started early on as the day of Pentecost because there were people in Jerusalem from Rome uh, that could have taken the gospel back. But it wasn't started by any of the apostles that we have um, you know, proof of. It definitely wasn't started by Paul. But yet, Paul knows a lot of people there for he greets at least 26 people that were known to him in chapter 16 of the book of, of Romans. So he does know a lot of people. Uh, he had never been to Rome yet. And that was one of the occasion, when we look at the occasion. Now, the occasion is why, what prompted Paul to write this letter. Uh, the occasion is a combination of three factors of why Paul wrote this letter. First of all, this woman named Phoebe was getting ready to visit Rome. And word is that maybe she was the one that carried the letter from Paul to Rome. Uh, but Phoebe's visit to Rome, you can read about her in chapter 16, verses 1 and 2. Um, the second occasion is... Paul wants to visit Rome. He said in chapter 1, I am eager to go to you and preach the gospel. Uh, so he has an anticipated journey. Um, there's also a desire that they help him with a proposed mission trip to Spain. He's also looking for the Roman church to help him on his missionary journey. And then number three, the information that was brought about by, uh, that was brought about by others that he heard from about the tensions between the Jewish and Gentile believers. And that was part of the uh, reason that he wrote that was to try to bring them into unity by settling some of these matters that was dividing them. And we will see some of that primarily more when you get past chapter 11, when you get into 12 to 16 or 15 primarily, um, as far as how he's dealing with the Jew and the Gentile believers. So there are several reasons that prompted him to write this letter. Uh, some of the emphasis in the book of Romans. Again, Jew and Gentiles together as one people of God. Um, what is the role of the Jews in God's salvation through Christ? Another emphasis is salvation by grace alone. 
Another emphasis that this salvation is received through faith in Christ Jesus and affected or brought about by the working of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Some other emphasis that you'll see in the, the book of Romans is the failure of the law to bring about righteousness and the success of the Spirit that brings about righteousness. The law could never bring about righteousness, and that was a problem for the Jews because they were looking toward that for righteousness. So that's one of the emphasis that we see in the book of Romans. Also, we see an emphasis of the need to be transformed in our minds by the Spirit. Do not be conformed to this world, it says, but be transformed by the renewing of the mind so that we are to live in unity as God's people in the present community. So you'll see some of those themes pop up uh, throughout as we read in the book of Romans. Uh, an overview of the book of Romans, you see on the bottom of page 54, uh, the most influential book in Christian history, as we talked about as the, the opening. It literally shaped Christianity in, in Western civilization as we know it today. But yet there are still many challenges to this book of Romans. Uh, on page 55, if you'll notice, on the first paragraph of page 55, at issue is the tension between the Jewish and the Gentile Christians in Rome. Uh, the early church, as we've mentioned before, did not meet like we did. They didn't have one central building that they all came and met to. There was groups that met in different homes and in different areas all around the city. And probably the Jews and Gentiles, we think and suspect, probably met in separate houses and probably met in separate places. They probably didn't even worship together, which was one reason why the Apostle Paul is admonishing them to, to worship together, to be together, to be of one together. So they probably met in separate house churches uh, who appeared to be at odds regarding the Gentiles' adherence to the Jewish law. Uh, and there were three basic means of Jewish identity that we see here that was causing probably some of the conflict. And it's not just unique to Romans. We get it from Galatians and other books as well. But first of all, one of the, the first basic mean of Jewish identity was circumcision. That was the problem in the church at Galatia, was that the Judaizers were coming in telling the people, you need to be circumcised if you, and keep the law of Moses if you want to be saved. So circumcision. The second is Sabbath observance, uh, you know, observing the Sabbath, uh, which was Saturday, and the early church started meeting on Sunday, which was the Lord's Day. Um, so, and it also wasn't just the day of the week, uh, but it was also the other festivals, the new moons, the other Sabbaths that the, the Jews had in their, uh, their religious calendar. And then the food laws. What can we eat? What is clean? What is unclean? That was a big area of contention. And the whole, cha the whole chapter of Romans 14 is dedicated to this idea of the, the, the strong believer, the weak believer, the, the free believer. Uh, what are we allowed to eat? What are we not allowed to eat? but also how to use the freedom that we have in Jesus Christ. So those are three basic means of Jewish identity. Um, what is at stake is whether the Gentiles must observe the Jewish law based on these points. What is at stake theologically is the gospel itself, whether God's righteousness comes by doing the law or does God's righteousness come by having faith in Christ Jesus and the giving of the Holy Spirit. Romans is written to tell us that God's righteousness is received 
not achieved. It's received by faith, not achieved by keeping the law. And what drives the argument from beginning to end is expressed in the conclusion, and that's the verse that we read a few moments ago, that the Gentiles and the Jews would have the same mind toward one another that Christ Jesus had toward them, and the focus of the argument is on what makes such unity possible. And again, God's righteousness is given to Jew and Gentile alike based on one thing, that is faith in Jesus Christ. Um, the third paragraph on page 55, the argument itself is in four major parts, and here's our major divisions that we have. Um, basically, and I'll, I'll simplify it a little bit from, from kind of the technicalities that he has in the book, but basically chapters 1 through 4 is the first section that we see. Chapters 1 through 4 is the first section that we see. Chapters 5 through 8 is the second section. Chapters 9 through 11 is the third section. And then chapters 12 through the end of the book is the fourth section that we have. So that's how we're going to take the book of Romans as we give an overview. The first four chapters, chapters 5 through 8, chapters 9 through 11, and then chapters 12 through the rest of the book. Um, if you see, in turn, different parts take up, number one, the issue of human sinfulness. The human sinfulness. That Jews and Gentiles are both sinful before God. The second thing that we see is how faith in Christ and the gift of the Holy Spirit affect the kind of righteousness that the law intended but can never pull off. If you are a heathen, pagan, idol-worshiping, Greek or Roman, you are lost in your sin. But also, if you're trying to be a moral, law-keeping, Torah-keeping Jew without faith in Christ, guess what? You're still lost in your sin. And that's the first part of the book of Romans that shows us how we're all, all of us, are lost in sin. And not only are we lost in sin, but there is no human antidote for that sin. There's no human prescription. It's not becoming more moral. It's not by keeping more religious laws or offering religious sacrifices. Not, nothing helps us. We are all lost. But yet, Romans shows us how we can be made righteous. So number three, how God is faithful despite the Jewish unbelief and having a place for both Jews and Gentiles in the covenant people of God is pictured in um, Romans chapter 11 as an olive tree. We'll get to that later. And then number four, what the righteousness affected by Christ and the Spirit looks like in terms of how we get along with one another. Because righteousness is not just about a vertical relationship between us and God. It's also horizontal with one another in the church. So it's good that I've been made the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. That's great for me that I've been made free and I'm a child of God, but how do I get along with others? in the same family of faith. And what does that look like within a community of believers? It can't just be all about me or it can't just be all about you. It has to be coexisting together as one despite the differences. So some of the that's just kind of the overview and some more of the themes. And again, we just keep repeating the same themes. Jew and Gentiles coming together through the righteousness of God received by faith. And that's the major theme of the book of Romans. Um, on page 56, 
It has specific advice for reading Romans. Um, you might have got a little confused reading that. I got a little confused reading that. Um, so we won't go through a lot of that. But the second paragraph on page 56, when he gives specific advice for reading Romans, that's just some things that the author, the writer of the letter does that he just wants to point out. Uh, the first thing that he points out here on the second paragraph of 56 Knowing two things may help you as you read. First, the argumentation Paul employs in this letter is patterned after a form of ancient rhetoric known as a diatribe. Basically, Paul is making his case by arguing with a person that's arguing back with him that he's made up in his mind. He's putting forth arguments that he's anticipating that people will have. He's addressing issues, and it may or may not be a specific person, but Paul is playing both sides as he's kind of arguing one to another, and it shows you the scriptures He's doing that. And then um, the last paragraph on 56, second, the nature of the argumentation is such as it follows a logical sequence of ideas. You can almost trace Paul's themes throughout the book, but you should not think that that represents a sequence of Christian experience. Some people have tried to separate justification from sanctification. Um, and the Spirit isn't really talked about until you get into chapter 7 and 8, but yet the Spirit is at work from chapter 1 on. So just a couple of things he mentions there. I wouldn't spend a lot of time bogged down in, in that section. All right, now let's get into the text. So I'm going to pick up my Bible here, and we're going to get into the text of Romans. And on page 57, you see the, the walkthrough through Romans. And for those that are kind of picking up the book and reading, this is, you know, it gives you the introduction, but when it starts with a walkthrough, here's what I do. I mean, I use this book when I'm reading, especially when I'm in the Old Testament reading stuff. So here's what I'll do when I'm reading. If you see on page 57, a walkthrough through Romans, it's got one, chapter one, verses one through seven. And I'll read that. In this, the longest by far of his salutations, note how Paul already focuses on the gospel to be resumed in 16 and 17 as including the Gentiles. So I'll read that and get in my mind, and then I'll go in here and read it, and I'll say, oh yeah, I see what he's talking about. So I kind of read you know, those, those paragraphs first, and then go back and read it and say, okay, yeah, now I see I can follow along. So that's, that's how I use it. So uh, the kind of the outline, chapter 1, verses 1 through 7, is a salutation. So let's start reading. If you have your Bible, we're going to read in Romans chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. We're going, to be able to, we're going to begin to see, even from the very beginning verses, how Paul sets forth this issue of the gospel. So Romans chapter 1, verse 1 starts out, Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God. So that tells us what Paul's purpose is. He's set apart for the gospel of God. Now he's going to expound on the gospel. The gospel he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, that's the Old Testament, regarding his son. So the gospel was promised before through the prophets. The gospel is about his son, who as to his earthly life was a descendant of David. So now he's establishing that Jesus, that the gospel is about Jesus, and Jesus is the descendant of King David. Therefore, he has the right to be king. And, through, and who through the spirit of holiness was appointed the Son of God in power by his resurrection from the dead. Jesus Christ 
our Lord. Right there in just that paragraph, you can begin to see what I mentioned earlier about how some of these words were used in Rome to establish the worship of the Caesars of Rome. So he starts out saying this gospel is about Jesus. Now again, the word gospel is the word good news. The word good news was used in the context of how the spread of Caesar would, would go when he would conquer nations and they would hear word the kingdom has expanded. That was the good news, the gospel about the Roman Empire. But he says this gospel is not the gospel of a Caesar or the Roman Empire. This gospel is the gospel of God. This gospel predates the Roman Empire. The gospel didn't start the Roman Empire. This gospel goes back to the prophets that wrote the Old Testament scriptures. It was prophesied. And it's not regarding a Caesar, but it's regarding God's son, who was a descendant of David, the rightful heir to be the true king. Not just the king of Israel, but king of kings and lord of lords. A descendant of David who through the spirit of holiness was appointed the son of God in power. Caesar is not the, the true son of God in power. Jesus is the true son of God in power. And he proved this not by, not by rising to power through some political method, but by rising to power through the resurrection of the dead. How Jesus was put on a cross and how he was buried and how he raised again from the dead in resurrection power. And he says this at the end of verse 4. This is Jesus Christ our Lord. Not Caesar. He's not our Lord. Jesus Christ is our Lord. Then in verse 5 he says, Through him we have received grace and apostleship to call all the Gentiles to the obedience that comes from faith for his namesake. And you also are among those Gentiles who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. So he gives a long introduction here in the first six verses. Before he even gives his recipients, he gives a very long introduction. And his introduction is already putting the gospel in the face of all the world. I don't care if you're in Rome. I don't care if you're in the greatest empire. I don't care if you have the greatest government and the greatest military. This is the gospel. This is the power. This is the true Son of God. This is true righteousness. This is the true good news. And Paul is putting that out there for the whole world. And he also specifically says, I'm an appointed an apostle to call the Gentiles to obedience. So a major issue and theme is the inclusion of the Gentiles in this gospel, this good news. For again, the Roman churches or the Roman church was made up of these house churches, made up of Jewish believers and Gentile believers. So he's speaking to both, and we'll see how he speaks to both. And then in verse number 7, we have uh, the recipients to all in Rome who are loved by God and called to be his holy people. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. So again, remember what we talked about last week with the, the form of the letters? Paul started out with the author, Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ. He gives a greeting. Then he gives uh, who it's written to, to all who are in Rome, loved by God. And then another short greeting, grace and peace to you. So we see here in verse number 8, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you because your faith is being uh, reported all over the world. 
God whom I serve in my spirit in preaching in the gospel of his son is my witness how constantly I remember you in my prayer at all times. And I pray that now at last by God's will, uh, the way may be open for me to come to you. That's Paul's desire. Paul wants to visit Rome. I mean, who wouldn't? The, the church at Rome was probably well established by now. Paul talked about how large it was. He talked about how their faith is spread. It's probably not a very, very young church by the time Paul is writing this. So it's probably a growing church. It's in you know, the largest empire of the world at the time. And Paul wants to get to Rome. He wants to preach the gospel. He wants to fellowship with the believers in Rome. So that's his desire. So verses 8 through 15 um, is a thanksgiving and prayer. Um, I thought God was I thought God was reading the Bible for us. Go ahead, Lord, read, read, read the Bible. Go ahead, Lord. You know, that's really how I think God sounds, that in Charlton Heston. But verses 1 through 7, salutation. Verses 8 through 15, thanksgiving and prayer. 16 and 17, as I showed earlier, that's the core verses of the book. That's the thesis of the book. Um, as you read the rest of the letter, you will see how many of its ideas and concerns are anticipated in, the, in these verses right here. Uh, the gospel is about God's Son. It is God's power to bring salvation to Jew and Gentile alike. It's the revelation of God's righteousness available to all on the same basis, namely faith in Jesus. So again, Romans chapter 1 verse 16 says this, Paul says, for I am not ashamed of the gospel because it, the gospel, is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first the Jew and then to the Gentile. That's how the gospel went forth, first to the Jew. Remember, we looked at that when we looked at the gospel foundations in the book of Acts. The first eight chapters was about the gospel going to the Jews exclusively in Jerusalem, the gospel to the Jew first and then to the Gentiles. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. How to be right with God is revealed. A righteousness that is by faith from first to last. For it is written, the righteous, the just or the righteous shall live by faith. Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's the righteousness of God to Jew and Gentile. It is the true power of God. And that is the overall theme of the book, the righteousness of God revealed in the gospel that brings salvation to all people, whether Jew or Gentile, received by faith. Uh, the key phrase occurs uh, over eight times in the letter. Again, it refers to the righteousness that God gives to those who have faith in Him. Thus, this opening statement, um, the key issues are affirmed. The way of right standing with God is made available to all in the gospel, opened by faith and faith alone and empowered by God himself. We just, just go over those same ones over and over again because that is what Paul is talking about. So that's kind of the theme verse there in the thesis. So first theme verse, Romans 1, 16, 17. The other we find back in Romans 15. Um, then we come to chapters, the rest of chapter 1 and chapter 2. Chapter 1 and chapter 2 is an indictment 
of everybody under the sun. Um, when you see here, uh, Paul begins by painting a dismal picture of the human condition. Starting with Gentile sinfulness. And the heart of Gentile sinfulness is always idolatry. That's what God judged his people for even in the Old Testament. Idolatry. Chasing after other gods. Putting others before God. Seeking after other ways. Seeking after other gods. So human sinfulness can be boiled down to idolatry. And everything else can extend out from that. Idolatry leads both to the worship of the creature and to the injustice and hatred, and to injustice and hatred of every kind. Kind of what we talked about on Sunday a couple of weeks ago. If you have creator and creation mixed up, instead of worshiping the creator, you begin to worship the creation. And that's what Romans chapter 1 says. So when we start reading in Romans chapter 1, and we'll just read a couple of verses, look in verse 18. If you notice, actually look in verse 17. Verse 17 says, For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. If you want to receive the righteousness of God, it's in the gospel. Now look at verse 18. The wrath of God is being revealed against all ungodliness and wickedness of people. So there in verse 17 and 18, you have a contrast. You have the righteousness of God revealed. That's through the gospel, through Jesus Christ. You have the wrath of God being revealed, and that is through sin and wickedness. And when you talk about the wrath of God, there's really two sides to that coin. There's kind of what we call the active wrath of God. Many people would point to the flood as an active wrath when God causes wrath to happen. That's how that's been seen through history. Uh, you know, judgment upon people, bringing nations, that's the, the active wrath of God. Then they have what they, we call the passive act of God, or wrath of God. And the passive wrath of God is really when God leaves us to our own way. When we say, God, here's how I'm going to live my life, and God says, okay, live your life that way. But don't be surprised at what happens when you live your life that way. What's the old saying, if you play with fire... You're going to get burned. If we want to play with sinful fire, sin has built-in consequences. Everything we do has built-in consequences. So if I go out and, and sin, you know, I might be forgiven by God if I ask God for forgiveness, but yet I could go out, I could lose everything in my life if I go out and sin and mess up. So the wrath of God is revealed. And the wrath of God is revealed through all ungodliness and wickedness because every sinful thing that we do has consequences in our lives. And God is standing there with arms wide open waiting to reveal His righteousness, calling us to salvation. But yet many people are choosing to live through their own rebellion and sinfulness and therefore suffering the consequences of their sin, which is looked upon in theological terms as the wrath of God. God. So the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth in their wickedness. Since they may be known, uh, they may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's inevitable quali invisible qualities, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, 
being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. He says, creation shows us God. Therefore, uh, verse number 21, for although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but in their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were dark. And although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of God, the immortal God, for images made to look like mortal human beings and birds and animals and reptiles. Therefore, this is the wrath of God, verse 24, therefore God gave them over to their sinful desires to the sinful desires of their heart, to their sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. So, the heart of this sinful world is idolatry. It's worshiping the creation, the creature over the creator. And when we place the creation in the place of the creator, our own desires become our own God. And it says that God gives them over to their sinful desires. And it expresses itself in every possible sinful way so that everybody that follows that is condemned. All the pagan immorality, everything that was out in the world is condemned. And it goes on to list them all. And it's a very dismal picture. The world is condemned in their sin. That's the reality. Now to the Jewish people that are reading this, they would say, yep, that's those sinful idolaters out in the world. I'm glad I'm not one of those. I'm glad I don't do those things that the pagans do. I'm glad that's not me. I'm glad I'm a Jewish person. I'm glad my father is Abraham. I'm glad I have the law. I'm glad I try to keep the law and be the best I can, and I don't work on the Sabbath, and I don't wear clothes with, with mixed fabrics in it, and I don't eat pork, and I don't get tattoos, and I don't do all of this because I'm a good Jew. And I'm in covenant with God because I'm a child of Abraham. So yes, Romans 1, Paul, way to go, Paul. Condemn all those people out in the world. Amen. They're all, they're all condemned. But then Paul goes to chapter 2. And here's what chapter 2 says. Well, let's, let's back up. Let's go to... Um, Okay, let's, let's start in chapter 2. Chapter 2, verse 1. So he gives this whole condemnation of all those out in the world, the Roman world with their Roman pagan worship and their Roman sexual perversions. And he says this, You, therefore, have no excuse. You who pass judgment on someone else. For at whatever point you judge another, you are condemning yourself. Because you who pass judgment do the same things. So now all those who weren't out doing all this pagan stuff and said, yeah, Paul, condemn everybody out there, Paul turns the tables. And we're going to keep reading. He addresses a different group of people. So verse number two. Now we know that God's judgment against those who do such things is based on truth. So when a mere human being passes judgment on them and yet does the same things, do you think you will not escape God's judgment? Or do you show contempt for the riches of God's kindness, His forbearance and patience, not realizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance? Yes, the world is condemned, but that's not the end of the story. God's getting ready to show that His kindness is going to be poured out on all of those out in this sinful world. So He says, hold on a minute, you who are automatically judging them, 
That's not the end of the story. He says in verse 5, But because of your stubborn and your unrepentant heart, you are also storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath when His righteous judgment will be revealed. For God will repay each person according to what they have done. To those who, by persistence in doing good, seek glory, honor, and immortality, He will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and who reject the truth and follow evil, there will be wrath and anger. There will be more trouble and distress for every human being who does evil, first for the Jew and also to the Gentile. But glory, honor, and peace for everyone who does good, first to the Jew and to the Gentile, for God does not show favoritism. Verse 12, all you who sin apart from the law, Gentiles, will perish apart from the law. And all who sin under the law, Jews, will be judged by the law. So he's saying, nobody has an excuse. Nobody gets a pass. Not those out in the world, not those judging those out in the world, and not those trying to be justified by the law. He says, so we're all in the same category. Now, you may be sitting there saying, there's not much good news in this book about good news of the gospel. Well, the good news is coming. So verse 17, real quickly, it says, Now you, if you call yourself a Jew, if you rely on the law and boast in God, if you know that His will and if you know His will and approve of what is superior because you are instructed by the law, if you are convinced that you are a guide for the blind, a light for those who are in the dark, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of little children, because you have the law, the embodiment of the knowledge of truth. You then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? You who preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that people should not commit adultery, do you keep adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob Temples, you who boast in the law, do you dishonor God by breaking the law? As it is written, God's name is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Circumcision, he says, has no value if you observe the law. But if you break the law, you have become as though you have not been circumcised. He basically says, you use the law to condemn everybody else. But you don't realize the same law condemns you because the issue is, is that we are all sinful at heart. And we, we all are rebellious at heart. So chapter 1, he condemns everybody out in the world that we would say. Romans chapter 2, he condemns everybody who tries to be moral and keep the law, but yet they still fall short of God's righteousness. So that brings us to chapter 3. And chapter 3 shows us whether you're a Jew or Gentile. You're both sinners. You're both under the wrath of God. You can't be good enough. You can't keep the law enough to be justified and righteous before God. So in chapter 3, it goes on to say, what advantage is there being a Jew? What value is there in circumcision? And he begins to list some of the things that is in the history. But then in verse number 9, he goes on to say, what shall we conclude? What's the conclusion of all that we've read from chapter 1, verse 18 until now? Chapter 3, verse 9, what shall we conclude? Do we have any advantage? Not at all. For we have already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles are like are all under the power of sin. As it is written, and now he goes back to quote, there is no one righteous, no, not one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have altogether become worthless. 
There is no one who does good, not even one. Their throats are open graves. Their tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers is on their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery mark their ways. The way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced, and the whole world would be held accountable to God. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of our sin. The law is the knowledge of sin. The law does not justify. The law condemns. So if everybody that's that's worshiping the creature out there is lost, if everyone that tries to follow the law, ends up being condemned by the law. What hope do we have? That's what the point he's trying to make. So in verse 21 of Romans chapter 3, he says this, But now, apart from the law, but now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known. How is the righteousness made known? to which the law and prophets testify. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference between Jew and Gentile, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. If you're worshiping pagan idols, if you're trying to keep the law but be condemned by the law, all have fallen short, all have fallen short of the glory of God. Now, when we talk about the Romans road, that's one of the first signposts on the Romans road. For all have sinned, Jew and Gentile. And that's the first verse we learn when trying to witness all have sinned. But you really don't have to go any further than the next couple of verses. So if you look at verse 23 of Romans 3, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, notice this, verse 24. The sentence doesn't stop in 23. And all are justified freely by His grace. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and all are justified freely by His grace. There's the good news. That's why Paul said, you know, all of everybody out there is under condemnation in God's wrath. He says, but don't judge those because God wants to show His kindness to them. And you've sinned just like them, but yet God wants to show His kindness to you. And God showed His kindness to us through Jesus Christ. So chapters two and three are build up, or chapters one and two are build up to chapter three. All have sinned, but yet all are justified freely by His grace through the redemption that came by Jesus Christ. Verse twenty-five: God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement, our atoning sacrifice through the shedding of His blood, to be received by faith. And that's the heart of the righteousness of God. All are condemned, but yet all are justified freely by His grace through Jesus Christ, through faith in what Jesus has done. So Romans is a book about the righteousness of God and how the righteousness of God is revealed to Jews and Gentiles alike. But righteousness only comes 
through the shed blood of Jesus Christ and only comes through faith in what Christ has done. Not trying to keep the law, not trying to be a moralist, but submitting to the righteousness of God, which he gives us through Jesus. That is how Jew and Gentile both are made right by God. I'm going to stop there.